0: No, it's a a blessing to be able to to come and and share the word with you guys and and this is really neat just to see how many people are here uh, with a desire of you're serious about your marriage and 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 a desire to uh, honor uh, the Lord uh, in your marriage and a desire to to love your husband, love your wife and so um, Lord willing this weekend will be a blessing for all of us as we Open the word and let the word wash us and change us and show us things within us that need to change and and help us to strive to do that. Sorry. Things like falling off. You think I have a weird shaped head or something. Um, so I remember when we first got married, me and my wife, I mean, uh, she was young. I was old. And uh, but we were serious about uh, our, our relationship and uh, we really wanted to honor the Lord. Uh, in in our marriage and uh, but I was a I was a baby believer I'd probably been saved maybe a year when we got married and so you know I was I was very green you know I I didn't know how to open the word and know where things were you know and I was completely dependent upon pastor or someone else helping me to know that but we uh so we sought out her pastor got premarital counseling and it was golden it was wonderful and I remember him telling me he just looked me right in the eye he was like if you ever want me to marry you He said, you must learn all these scriptures and then be able to tell me what they mean and how that's going to look in your marriage. I was like, yes, sir. You know, and I was just like memorizing scripture. And I remember some of the one, I mean, in case you you don't know, I mean, some of the the main places that you always need to live as, as married couples is Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, Colossians 3, 18 through 19, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 9, Titus 2, 3 through 8, and Proverbs 31. And I just remember, uh, you know, we we memorized those things, uh, me and Kenzie, and and we have been striving to live those ever since. Failing, stumbling, getting back up, keep pressing on. Fail again, stumble, get back up, press on. But it's striving uh, to uh, to live those things out. And as you as you strive to submit to His Word, uh, not only do you actually begin to grow in understanding of what it actually means and how that plays out in marriage. Uh, but but you actually you end up growing more and more and more in your love for Jesus Christ, um, and he the, the, your love for him becomes the motivation uh, for for you to love your wife or to love your husband. So tonight I thought I'd pick one of those, and uh, we're we're gonna look at uh, the the roles of the husband and the wife uh, in marriage, and we're calling the husbands and wife who fear the Lord. Uh, and we're gonna look at Ephesians five tonight. So if you have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians five. We're gonna look at Ephesians five twenty one. Uh, through thirty three, and and uh, I think in your notes there you got the, um, the three main points: the motivation for a godly marriage, the foundation for a godly marriage, and uh, the the application for a godly marriage. And I just wanted to rhyme and have the Asian on there. But uh, so anyway, but it's just basically kind of three things to hang your hat on as as we are in here tonight and talking about this together, uh, striving to understand what the word of God says about marriage. Uh, what that means in in each of of our marriages, and then uh, and like I said, letting the Lord just refine us and change us. But before we even try to open His Word and and see what His Word says, let's pray together and ask Him to help us to to discern His truth, to uh, to apply His truth, and uh, because it's it's a gift from Him to even be able to know this stuff. So let's let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. Lord, we thank you that uh, that you have given us your Word. Uh, that you have sent your Spirit to dwell in the hearts of your children uh, so that we can discern uh, the mind and the will of the Lord, so that we can have an understanding of of, um, your uh, will in our life. Lord, we thank you that you've not left us here um, uninformed, that you've not left us here to figure things out on our own. Uh, But by your grace, by your love, uh, you sent your Son to die for our sins, to take our sinfulness from us to pay for that sin. And then your son, Jesus Christ, sent the spirit of God to dwell in the hearts of, of all uh, believers. And Lord, that you've, you've sworn uh, through your covenant that, that your spirit will dwell in our hearts, that you will give us the ability to discern uh, the spiritual, that you'll allow us to be able to know the mind of Christ, and to know the will of God uh, through your word and through your spirit. And we pray tonight as we open your word, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to, to know you more, to be submissive to your word and your truth. Just help us to live in a way that glorifies you. Help us to love our spouses. Help us to exemplify Jesus Christ in all that we do. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. So Ephesians 5, 21 through uh, 33. Um, and uh, like I said, the, these are just verses that that you, you, have, to, you have to have to. In your mind, in your heart, these are verses you have to have on your wall. I actually, I keep these on my wall in my office. Um, I just, you know, just type them out, staple it on the wall, just because I want these things in front of my my eyes all the time. Because, like I said, I mean, maybe you're smarter than me and, and more faithful than me, but I forget and I get selfish and I get proud and I don't do these things all the time. But this is where we have to live and this is where we have to stay. And so, uh, you know, as um, as uh, as the husband of my wife, I want to make sure that I am adhering to this every day and that's one of the things i just encourage you to do is memorize these verses have them in your mind because you know when when times get rough or when you're trying to figure out what to do you can't just always go open the bible and be like now where was that ephesians what you know and flipping through it you gotta you gotta know these things you know it's just like at work you know you, we can't just go open the the, the user man, manual every time or go figure out you gotta you gotta know what to do on the spot so that marriage is the same thing and so having the word in our mind in our heart or in front of your eyes putting it there on your dash as you're driving to work, just getting this in your mind. But let's read it together, Ephesians five twenty-one to 33. And, uh, and this we're jumping right in the middle of, of uh, the letter to the Ephesians, and we'll talk about that in a second too. But uh, starting in verse 21, it says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. and he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one has uh, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love. His own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Uh, I had the, the privilege to teach through Ephesians um, a couple of years ago in the, in the college and the, the youth group, uh, and it was a blessing. When we got to, to these verses, actually, I spent five weeks uh, uh, walking through these verses. Um, so, I mean, trying to squeeze into three hours tonight is going to be rough, but we're going to do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, the, really, when you look at these verses, uh, Ephesians 5, 21, is kind of, it, it's, it's ending the section that we came into, and it's, it's basically paving the way for everything, all of the instruction that is coming, for husbands and wives, children and parents, for employers and employees, everything coming down the line. But it's the conclusion of the previous section, when it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is coming in the context of all of the other uh, things that, that Paul has been telling us, or the Lord has been telling us through the Apostle Paul, talking to the Ephesians. Uh, and, there, and, and from Ephesians four, five, and six, in those three chapters, there are 40 imperative commands for us to to, to hear and to to live our lives by. There's a lot going on here. And that all stemmed from the first three chapters where he tells us so much about the grace and the mercy of of God and of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us. This is coming right on the tail end of of Paul describing what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So honestly, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ— is, is just part of what it looks like to actually be controlled by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is within us, and if he gets controlling our lives, then, then we will subject ourselves to one another. Um, and, and that's coming after he's already told us to walk worthy of the calling of which we've been called. In other words, we're to, we're to live our lives uh, up to the measure and the standard that, that Christ has shown us. Um, He has already told us before this to put on the new self, to put off the old, the things that we were in our sinful past, and to begin to put on the new of what Christ is like. Uh, He's told us to imitate God, to love like Jesus Christ. All of these are imperative commands for us to live as children of the light, to live wisely, to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And so there's a bunch of admonitions, a bunch of mandates and commands from the Lord for us to, to examine the way we live our lives and make sure that our lives... Look like the life of Christ and again, all of us if you read those 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 mandates or those commands, all of us see that we fall short of that. but I always tell the youth in the college this we never lower the standard to where we feel like we've made it. we leave the standard of Christ and you keep your eyes on him and you keep running towards him without looking back without looking at yourself thinking that you've made it because if we lower the bar at all then we've created our own religion. And if we can meet that bar, then we become self-righteous because then we can judge ourselves as having accomplished something Christ-like when we're to strive after him, always pursuing him, but we will never, this side of heaven, reach that standard. But we keep going, and we keep going because we love him, because our eyes are on him, and in doing so— we began to look more and more like him in this life. And so that's what we're looking at here. When we talk about subjecting ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ, we are talking about his spirit controlling us, us walking in a manner worthy of him, us putting off the old self and on the new self, us striving to imitate Jesus Christ and to walk in love as he loved. And so all of this stuff comes together. But all of that being said, those imperatives and even this, 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 uh, this, this command to be subject to one another all stems From our love of Christ. And that love that we have for him. is completely dependent upon the love. That he has for us. We can only love because he first loves us. And the only way that we can. pursue our wives. In the way that he's called us to. Is to honestly be pursuing him. Because of our love for him. And that's always the way it is with Christianity. If we take our eyes off him. And then put them on her. And strive to love her. In our own. Uh, uh, power in our own flesh, then we will, we will create some sort of, of, of self-made religion or some sort of legalism that just will not be what he's talking about here. And so if you look at it, the motivation for, for our reason uh, to, to do this or the motivation for a godly marriage or for us to be able to, to live this way is our fear of Christ. Like he says there, he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And it's the motivation that calls us to action. Our motivation is Jesus Christ. That is how you love your wife. That is why you love your wife. That through him is the only way that you can love your wife or love your husband the way that God's called us to. And if you look at Ephesians, he he, he motivates the Ephesians with all these imperatives by putting their focus on Christ. He's told them before this that it's in Christ that God chose us. I mean, us even being here and us being able to discern his word, us being able to love our wives is completely dependent upon God loving us first and choosing us and drawing us to himself. And that had nothing to do with us and our goodness or our power or our ability to do anything. He chose us. He made us holy. He's the one that causes us to be blameless. He predestined us and adopted us before the foundation of the world. Again, not because of who we are, but because of his love for us. And all of this, it says, was because of his kind intention. God is kind, and he intended for us to be his, and he intends for us to love our spouses. He goes on to say that we're redeemed in Christ, forgiven by Christ, given insight into the mind and the will of God only through Christ, and these are gifts given to us by him, and all of this is not just for our benefit, but for his glory. I mean, even that, that's why you love your wife. That's why you love your husband, because it's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And all that being said, all of this will culminate in his return, in Christ being king, in him being exalted, in all of the nations, and all people bowing down before him and exalting him. God is right now seated Christ in the heavenly places next to his throne. God has given Jesus Christ authority over all authorities, a name above all names. And he's waiting for the time that God says, go, and he returns and he reigns on David's throne here for a thousand years. And all come and bow down before him and pay allegiance to him. And and during this time, he is still, even now, the head of the church. He's the, the leader of all of us. He is the shepherd. He is the king. He is the head. And he is the most honored. He is God. And we love him. And we love him because he loves us. And has done all of this for us. Out of his kindness and his love and his mercy and his grace. And so the motivation... For us to love one another is his love for us and us keeping our eyes on him. That has got to be the beginning. Anything else will fall short. So he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. To be subject means to submit yourself under the orders of someone. It means to fall into rank behind someone, to obey, to bring yourself under their control. And again, look at this. We're talking about Christians. In general, all believers are to submit themselves to one another in the fear of Christ. That's a call for all of us. That's a call for men and for women, for husbands and for wives. This is our lives. This is how we live. Others come before ourselves. Jesus says this over and over and over. We are to be humble. We are to assess ourselves low. And we are to look out for the needs and the interests of others and put them before us. We're to live our lives submissive to one another so that for their good. So that they can know him more. So that as we humble ourselves and we are submissive, they see Christ in us. Christ tells us this all the time. We're to edify others. We're to help others. We're to deny ourselves. We're to lay down our lives for the brethren and even for our enemies. We're to humbly place ourselves under the authority of others, putting their interests before ourselves and looking out for their good and his glory. And all of this is founded on selfless love and humility. Again, we've got to start there. This is a call for all of us. And the church imitates Jesus Christ who did this perfectly. Christ is actually the example of this. Jesus Christ, who Philippians 2 says, existed in the form of God but did not regard a quality of God. He, he humbled himself and emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, enslaving himself to his father, doing only his father's will. Like John says, he never did anything on his own initiative, never spoke a single word on his own initiative, but only did what his father told him to do and only said what his father told him to say. And then he submitted himself not only to his father's will, but also even to the unrighteous judgment of mankind. And we murdered him on the cross. We hated him, and and mankind killed him. But even that was part of the father's plan that he was being submissive to. And he submitted himself even to their unrighteous judgment for their good, for our good. We're no different than the Pharisees and the, the Romans and everyone else that was there. We would have killed him as well. And he did it for the good of his enemies. So he submitted himself to his father and he submitted himself to others, even to his enemies, for their good. That's what it looks like to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we as the church are called to imitate Christ. We've already said that in Ephesians, right? To walk in love as Christ loved. This is the call for all of us. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's the fear of Christ that motivates us to faithful, loving, obedience, submission, Humility and selflessness. Now, when we talk about fear, you know, usually when we talk about fear in God, you always hear it's reverence and awe, and that is definitely it and part of it. But it's also fear and dread. Fear is fear, it's not just awe, but it's, but it's, it's fear and awe mixed together. And, and, and when you look at the Bible, you see the fear of God all the time. Jacob called God the fear of his father, Isaac. God showed up in Mount Sinai in, 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 in terror and gloom, and the people were terrified, fearful. They, 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 they were told, Moses, you go talk, because, I mean, we're not coming close to him. I mean, there is a fear that comes with the presence of God. There is a fear, even in the hearts of his chosen, even in the hearts of his children, that comes when we think of who God is. Not a terrifying fear of the wrath and judgment of God as his children, but a fear of who he is and a fear of even what, what, what is, uh, is, is ordained by our father when we transgress him. I mean, the kids get this. When I'm in middle school and I, I teach the middle schoolers and I, I talk to them and we talk about the fear of God, you know, and, and they all say, you know, it's a, it's a reverential awe, it's respect, you know, and it is, but, but it's more. And I, and I always ask them, I'm like, do you, do you love your dad? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, and, and does your dad love you? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, but do you ever fear him? And they're like, yeah. You know? it's like, <laughs> and, and I was like, well, when do you fear him? And they said, well, we're doing something wrong, right? That's when we, we that's when, I mean, it's just not, nice. it's built in us. It's innate. And, and, and there's a fear even of God from his children. Now, they, the, you know, the, the middle schoolers, they know their dad's not going to, you know, if they, they get caught doing something. He's not going to disown them, cut them out, and, you know, and, and, and they're, they're completely done away with But they know that it's not okay. And whatever discipline's coming is not what they desire, but but and, and if they're doing something they know that their father is not okay with, there's a fear there, right? Does that make sense? And, and it's the same thing with us with God. And there's many fearful verses for believers in the Bible. Again, none of them have to do with eternal hell and the wrath of God, but they all have to do with the discipline of the Lord. And, and they're good verses. Verses like, if we do not show the same kind of mercy that Christ has shown to us towards others, then... Understand that the Father is not okay with that, and we are currently under His discipline until we repent and show mercy, like we've been shown mercy. That's a fearful verse. You can't read that in Matthew 18 and go, man, nail no. it. You know, and that always brings you back down, and you're like, man, you just start thinking of all the people that you embittered towards, and you immediately you're just like, I need to call him. I got, I can't do this. You know, that that's a good fear. Right, Matthew 5, if you're going to offer your offering and, and, and you realize your brother has something against you, you drop it. You stop this whole feigned worship and you go and you reconcile with your brother, then come back and worship the Lord. That's a fearful verse. It's a good verse, though, because we all get embittered. We all have problems. We're all going to sin against one another. And it's going to happen. But when it happens, we must show mercy. We must be kind. We must love. We must always pursue and we must reconcile because that's what Christ does for us. And that's the character of God. And so we can't just hang on to those things. Those are fearful verses, but good fearful verses that cause us to imitate Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. We submit to one another in the fear of Christ. We do it because that's what he is like. And if we don't do it, we have to understand that he's not cool with that. And that he is going to be, he's going to actively work, not against us, like I said, in a wrathful way, but against us in a way that's going to confront that sin, cause us conviction, cause us to have to love others and have to look out for their interests and submit to others. So all these things are based on that. We have to know that. Marriage is founded on mutual submission. And that mutual submission is fueled and pushed along by the fear of Christ. And we always submit to one another. And we always look out for one another's interests. And put one another before ourselves. Because that is just what Christians do for all believers. But very, very much more important and, and, and most important with your spouse. The, the home, I'm probably going to say this a few times. The home is, is not only the proving ground, but but it's it's it's... Yeah, it's the proving ground of, of our faith. What we do in the home proves what we are. You can't be unsubmissive to your spouse. You can't not look out for her interests. You can't be bitter against your spouse and then all of a sudden flip it and you're loving and kind towards others. That's called hypocrisy. What we are in the home is what we are. What we are in the home is, is, is not only the evidence of our faith. But but it reflects whether or not we're even capable of doing that outside of the home. That's why when we look at elders, the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy and Titus, the majority of it is about character and about the character that that is is manifest within the setting of the home. Because that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's where we as sinners think that we can hide. We'll, We'll talk to our children in a whole different way than we talk to our friends. And we'll talk to our spouse in a different way than we would talk to our boss. And that's not okay. They must be first. When it comes to relationships that God has put us in on this earth, and that must be where we imitate Christ the most and the best. We, as husbands and wives, Must be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Marriage is founded on mutual submission in the fear of Christ. John MacArthur said this way. He said, Every obedient, spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. The husband who demands his wife's submission to him but does not recognize his own obligation to submit to her distorts God's standard for the marriage relationship and cannot rightly function as a godly husband. Parents who demand obedience from their children but do not recognize their own obligation to submit in loving sacrifice to meet the needs of their children are themselves disobedient to their heavenly father and cannot rightly function as godly parents. This does not mean, of course, that the husband is supposed to be supposed to abdicate his God-ordained role of leadership and authority in the home. What it does mean is that he, uh, I'm sorry, what it does mean is that the way he must exercise his leadership is not by lording it over his wife and family, but by serving them, sacrificing himself for them with a Christ-like humility. He is to support his wife by helping bear her burdens and shoulder her cares and her needs, even if it means sacrificing his own desires to meet her needs. That is the foundation of a godly marriage. Mutual submission to one another in the fear of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the second point, the founder, or that's the motivation. The foundation for a godly marriage is the nature of Christ himself. Like I said, we are to be looking at him. And we are to be exemplifying him, imitating him, loving like Christ loves. And so, the, 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 the foundation for our marriage must be Jesus Christ, the nature of Christ. God has created marriage to be a reflection of his own love for us and our love for him. That's what he is. Marriage is 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 a picture, a tangible picture, a relationship that we can physically be in in this present age that we can understand more how he loves us and how we are to love him. It it, it helps us to know Christ more if we listen to what he says and practice these things within our marriage. Uh, The first the first foundational principle here is the subjection of the church to Christ. We're going to see this, 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 uh, this picture here of, of, of the, the, the church's love for Christ and Christ's love for the church. And that's really what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about God's love for us, Christ's love for us, and then our love and submission to him. And then he says marriage is the same thing. And this is how your marriage should look. And so look at verses uh, 21 through 24. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be uh, to their husbands in everything. Now, here's how I read these verses, and it helps me. To get the foundational principle out of it, uh, and, then, and then we'll look at the application after that. Just look at the stuff about Christ here. So if you start in verse 21, be, be, well, start in verse 22. No, start in verse 21. <laughs> be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, in verse 22, as to the Lord. All right, so that's, that's the call. As Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, the church is to be subject to Christ in everything. That's the principle. The principle is a relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And so what we see in these verses is first and foremost, the subjection is the will of God. I mean, we've already nailed that. We looked at that in verse 21. This is his will. God has made all things with, with, with authority and subjection. I mean, that's how our jobs work. That's how parenting works. That's how relationships with with, uh, government work. That's how even Christ himself works. He is the author of both subjection and authority and how those things play out. It's part of his creation. It's part of his plan, how he made created order. It's even included in his own nature and character. It's how the Trinity works. Even God himself works with authority and subjection within himself. As crazy as that sounds, and I know, uh, you know, they just uh, trying to understand how God works is just mind blowing. But you've got God the Father, who is this authority over Christ, who is also his equal. But Christ always submits himself to the Father's will, never speaks on his own initiative, always does what his Father wants perfectly, always to his glory. And then Christ sends the Spirit of God who is submissive to Christ and always glorifies Jesus Christ and points back to Christ, never speaking outside the authority of and the words of both the Father and the Son. And so even within this relationship of God, one God, there is authority and submission. That's just part of who God is. And then when God created this this. Uh, universe he created it with this part of him of authority and submission so it's not up to us to decide who is in authority and who is not but to listen to him and to submit to what he has said how he created things and so within marriage there's authority and there's submission and subjection is god's will and ephesians 1 before this it's talking about the submission of of um or christ being the authority uh, and other things being submitted underneath them in ephesians 1 20 through 22 he says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him. So this is God's doing. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Right, so Christ is a far above, way exceeding all authority. And that was God's plan. God is the one that put him there. Uh, and, and, uh, and it says, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then he says this, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. So God put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus Christ and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is exactly what we're talking about here. So that was God's divine plan. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. All things are subject subject to him. And it says in the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first thing we got to understand, we got to believe, we got to wrap our minds around is that subjection, submission is part of the will of God. It's just his will. That's how God made it. Even when it comes to Christ's relationship uh, to to us, we are subject to him. But beyond that, you know, Christ is the authority, but we also see that subjection is Christ-like. Though he is the authority and all things have been put in subjection underneath him, when he showed up and Christ lived a human life, God became a man. He exemplified submission in a way that you and I need to look at and strive to imitate. In Philippians 2, 5-8, it says that we, Christians, those who believe in him and are filled with his Spirit, are to have this attitude in ourselves, which also existed in Christ Jesus. So here is the nature of Christ. Here is the heart of Jesus Christ. Here is the attitude that Christ had. When God became a man, here's how he lived. It said, although he existed in the form of God, so he was God and he is God, it said he did not regard equality with God as to be grasped. Here's how he lived his life. It says, He emptied himself and took the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. He is both authority and given authority by God. But in a time that God ordained came to earth as a man and submitted himself both to his father and to the unrighteous judgment of mankind. Because this was part of his father's plan and will and all of that for our good and for God's glory. That is submission. That is being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is being submissive to God. And that is what Christ did. That is the nature and the character of Christ. Now look at this. It goes even further with Jesus Christ. So After his submission and after his humility, he was exalted. We just read that, right? He sits at God's right hand, highly exalted right now. Name above all names, angels bowing down before him, giving him glory, praise, and saying worthy is the lamb and all of that stuff. But there's still a time of submission for Jesus Christ. If you look in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, 28, it says that God has put all things in subjection uh, to Christ under his feet. But it says this. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that God is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. So Christ is still submissive to God, even in his place of authority and exaltation at God's right hand. And look at this. This is amazing. It says, and when all things are subjected to him. So in the end, after he has become king and he is king reigning on his throne and all things have been put in submission to him and, 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 and Satan is judged and, 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 and death and, and sin are, are thrown into the lake of fire. It says, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. In the end, Christ will hand his mediatorial kingdom back over to his father who will be all in all and take his place with the Godhead in submission and equal authority with him. That's just who Christ is. Submission is always Christ-like, both in his time on earth and in the future when he submits all things back to his father. So submission is God's will. It's it's Christ-like. And then humble submission to God is what produces Christ-likeness in his children, all of us. First thing, we know that as we submit to him and as we try to exemplify Christ, it is going to produce holiness in us. In fact, we're going to read in a second, Ephesians 5, 26, talking about Christ to the church. It says that Christ cleanses his bride, the church, from sin through the washing of water with the word. In other words, as we, as he gives us his word and as we listen to his word and submit to his word, he cleanses us from the sin that is within us. That's what we call conviction. That's why we read the word of God every day. We read the word of God because the word of God exposes our sin. And as it exposes our sin, his spirit pushes us to obey his word, to submit to his word, to do what his word says. And in doing so, we're doing that whole thing of putting off the old, putting on the new. And in doing that, he is making us holy. Every day, he makes us more and more holy through the power of his word and the power of his spirit and the power of his church. Those things combined, he makes us more holy as we submit to his word. Also, we see that submission causes us to be more and more mature spiritually. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 talks about this. It says, through the proclamation of his word, it says that he equips the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith, uh, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man. And look at the measure of the maturity. He says, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is what he is doing. He sends me to teach you. He sends you to teach your wife and your children and, 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 and you to talk to other believers. Every time we proclaim the word of God to the people of God, it is doing the work of God by refining us, changing us, building us up, making us more and more into his image, giving us a better understanding and knowledge of who Christ is. All for the purpose of causing us to become more and more like him. And that will not stop until we are fully Made like him. In other words, he will do that for each of us until the day we die. That's what he is doing, as we submit to his word, and we see that this happens. The way God has kind of ordained the prescription is he gives us his word through the power of his spirit, and that puts us in a place of testing, in a trial, in something that will cause us to see the things in us that have to go. And James talks about this, right? He says that we consider it joy when we encounter various trials, because we know the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance has its perfect result, so that we may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's just another way of saying be like Christ. So he gives us his word, he calls us to submit to his word, and then he puts us in a place where it's going to expose our anxiety, expose our anger, expose the places that we do not trust him, and then he calls us now, submit. And trust me, submit, and act like me. Submit, and show mercy like I show mercy. Submit, and be patient the way that I am patient. And in doing so, in those trials, that becomes the place of our refinement. And that's how he makes us more like Christ. Submission, submission is his will. Submission is like Christ. And submission is how we become Christ-like. Submission is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a gift given to us by God. It's just like him. That's so different than what you hear in our culture, right? And we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And wives are to be subject specifically and purposefully to their husbands in all things as unto the Lord. And that's his call. So the application of a godly marriage then is the imitation of Jesus Christ. If if the foundation is the nature of Christ, well, then the application, what we're to do about it, is be like him. That's what we're called to do. Wives, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ, both in who he is uh, when he submits all things to his father and also who he lived like on this earth. And let me say it this way, too. Jesus Christ is the example of what each of us in the church are to live like towards him, towards God. Right here in this analogy and what he's talking about here, it's, it's the example of the church, the church's role to Christ because he is the head of the church. But when he became a man, he lived this. He lived perfectly submissive to his father's will and always glorified his father. So he's the example. So when you look at this, the wife is to be a picture both first and foremost for each of us and how we are to live towards Christ. But she's also to exemplify the nature and character of Christ in her submission to her husband. You know, like we've already talked about what submission is. It's humbling yourself, putting others' interests before yourself. It's putting yourself in subjection to another person. Colossians 3 talks about this, wives be subject to your husbands. Titus 2 says this, older women encourage younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. When wives are not submissive to their husbands, you dishonor the word of the Lord, you displease God. You grieve the spirit of God within you that is crying out for you to be submissive like Christ is submissive. To exemplify him in this life. In the same way, the husbands do the same thing when they're not submitting themselves to their wives. But the wives have a special role to submit to the husband. To submit to the husband. And he says, to your own husband, to your particular husband, the one belonging only to you. This is not a call for every woman to submit to every man. I mean, we have to subject one another in the fear of Christ. That's a call for all Christians. But This is for you to submit to your personal husband, the the husband that God has given to you. It's very purposeful in particular. God has ordained a specific husband for each wife to submit to. And you submit to him as to the Lord. It's complete submissiveness in everything. In the same way that we submit to the Lord in all things, the wives are called to do that to their husbands. And, And also... When the wife does this, she becomes that visible display of the submission of Christ to his father. And the wife's submission to her husband's becomes a tangible expression of the submission that all of us should have towards one another and towards God. In other words, every wife in this room has the God-given privilege and duty to exemplify what all of us should be doing and how all of us should be living towards one another and how all of us should be living towards Christ. You become an example of Christ for all of us. And you become an example of what each of us as the children of God are to be doing towards one another. As we watch your humble, obedient, loving submission to your husband, putting his interest before yourselves, denying yourselves so that he, for his good and for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, as wives submit to their husbands, It will produce holiness, maturity, and Christ-likeness in your life. Every time you strive against your desire to step up and to step over your husband's authority, every time you, 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 you fight against the desire to look out for your interests instead of his, to look out for your needs instead of his, every time you strive to put him before yourself, to love him more than yourself, and to live towards him in a way that Christ lived towards his Father, then it causes you to become more like Jesus Christ. And you become an example to him of what Christ is like. And you become an example to your children of what Christ is like. So that you can say to them, this is how our Lord and Savior have lived, and this is how we are called to live. We are to submit ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ, and I am to submit myself to your Father in this way. Submission comes through practice. And like anything, when it comes to, to understanding the nature and the character of God, it's it's practice that produces discernment and maturity understanding, right? I always talk to the kids this way. I say, you know, patience. Anybody can give you a definition of patience, right? Patience. And you can look on the dictionary, patience is... Uh, yeah, I can't give you a definition of patience. <laughs> but patience is, you know, uh, not, not, not getting angry or whatever. You can just kind of describe patience in general. But... You understand patience, right, when someone begins to provoke you. Now now you can explain patience from the dictionary, but you also feel what patience feels like when there's somebody provoking you. And then you begin to understand patience more as you strive not to retaliate, not to, to, to get angry, not to fight back, and, and that person keeps provoking. And the more you're provoked and the more you're tested and the more your patience is tested, the more you begin to understand what patience is. And the more patient you become, the more opportunities the Lord will give you to be patient with people that are even harder to be patient with. You'll start meeting people that actually hate you, that actually want to hurt you purposefully. And now patience becomes even bigger. Your discernment of what patience is becomes greater. And your understanding of God's patience towards you becomes bigger. The more we practice anything, the more we understand it. And the more we understand it, the more we understand his patience, kindness, love, love, Submission, mercy towards us, the more we understand it, the more we practice it. This is what the Lord does in us. These things, maturity is is, is built by practice. Uh, Hebrews 5.14, talking about discernment, the ability to understand these things and know what is right, what is wrong, what Christ is like, what he is not. He says, solid food is for the mature because of practice. They have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So, wives... Submit to your husbands to exemplify Christ, to become an example of what Christ is like for both your husbands and for your children and for the rest of the church. And in doing so, God will use that striving to submit to cause you to become more like Jesus Christ. The next part is for the, the husband. The foundation of the godly marriage, like we said, is the nature of Christ. If you look at the next verses, the husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church. That's a big call. We're to love In the same way that Christ loves us. Again, if you look at the verses and you just take out the the husband's call, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. We know that love is the will of God. The Lord has said this from the very beginning, and, and Jesus reiterated it when he came. That is is his commandment that we love one another just as he has loved us to the same degree, to the same measure, to the same equivalent as he loves us. We are to love one another. That's his call. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. And that is exactly the call for the husband to the wife. You are to exemplify the love of Jesus Christ to your wife by sacrificing your life, giving up your life for her specifically. We know love is like Christ. Again, because this is over and over in the word of God, 1 John 4 says that um, that we're to love one another because God is love. And it says by by uh, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of love. If you want to understand God's love, you look at Christ. Does God really love us? Christ. That's the answer. He sent his own son to die for his enemies to to be the propitiation to to appease the wrath of God and to pay for the sinfulness of his enemies so that his enemies could receive his inheritance and and be reconciled to himself that is love and the love of Christ is that he was willing to lay down his life for those who hate him who, who physically murdered him and then for all of us who came down through the ages who have who have added to the 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 um, if you want to say it that way I mean he paid for all of it on the cross not like it continues to, to add up but, but all of our sins culminated in the wrath of God being poured out on the Son and he paid for all of the sins of all of his children on the cross that was his love for us and we're to love like Christ that's what Christ has done for us and he laid down his life for us and we also see that humble sacrificial love produces Christ likeness in us as we strive to love like Christ, then we will become more like Christ. Just like we looked at the submissiveness in the wife. So how did Christ love the church? How does Christ love the church? Well, if you read there in Ephesians, it says that Christ loved the church by laying down his life for her. Christ loved the church by bearing the sins of his bride. He loved his bride by, by dying so that she might live. He loved his bride by laying aside everything that he deserved, many of the attributes that made him superior to all things for her sake. He loved his bride by enslaving himself to her. He loved his bride by suffering under her harsh treatment of him to the point of death, even for her good. And he even bore what she deserved so that she could have what only he deserved. That was the love of Christ towards the church. How did he love her? He, he committed no sin. He never deceived. He never reviled when being reviled. And he never threatened even when suffering. He submitted himself to his father's will in obedience rather than hating her. How does Christ still love her? Look at what Ephesians 5 says. It says he sanctifies her christ continues to purify his bride and that's how he loves her it says he sanctifies her cleansing her with the washing of water with the word how he, he cleanses each of us with his truth he even prayed this for both his disciples there that night and for all believers to come uh, in john 17 he says sanctify them in your truth your word is truth you sent me into the world and now i have sent them into the world For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. To what extent does he sanctify his bride and cause us to be holy? He says, uh, until there is complete maturity. Until she is perfect and sinless. It says that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In all of her glory. That's what Jesus is doing for us. So that when his bride is presented at that wedding face, he says... There she is, perfect, no spot, no blemish, nothing. I have perfectly sanctified her, and she is beautiful. He gave his life for us, and he continually refines us and changes us and helps us until we look just like him. That's the love of Christ for his bride. That is how he loves us. First Corinthians eleven seven says that the woman is the glory of man. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. We are to love our wives in the same way that he loves the church. She should be our glory. I mean, I think of it this way. Talk about the fear. The the fear of Christ and loving your wife this way. This is is how my little pea brain kind of puts all this together. Maybe this will help you. I understand that my wife has been given to me by him. But that this is his daughter. My wife is a daughter of of the king. She's a fellow heir of of the grace of of Christ. She's she's, she's his, right? My, My wife is a daughter of God and here's what God has done. He has entrusted his daughter to me. And then he said, you laid down your life for her and sanctify her in the same way that I've done for you. That puts fear in the heart of any man. And if it doesn't, then repent. God gives you his daughter and says, I want you to love her in the same way that I loved you. And I loved you by sending my only son to die for you, to take your sins, to bear your sins, so that you could have the glory that only he deserves. You, therefore, love her like that. Lay down your life for her and sanctify her with everything that you have. And he empowers us, he gives us the ability and and, and and the words and the and the and the spirit is, is the one that does the work. But, but he uses the husband to be that tangible way for his, his daughter to become more and more and more like him. Now, again, the fear part is this: what if you don't? It terrifies me to think that I would stand before Jesus Christ one day. And he would look at me and he would say, Why did you steal so much time for yourself and waste it on things that just are meaningless, that fade away, that were only useful for your own temporary gain, that only pleased your selfish desires? Why, she she had to to sit there being unrefined by you while you pleased yourself. Why did you bring home all these burdens that you yourself were struggling with, and lay them on her shoulders so that she then had to bear all of these things. You're to take her burdens and place them on you. You're to bear her sin, not add to it. Why was it so easy for you to sin against her and to, and to cause her? I gave her to you for you to take that from her. And we're called to love our wives in the way that He loved us. Christ would never add sin to us he would never lay burdens upon us that he knows that we don't have the capacity to bear and the responsibility to bear he doesn't waste time doing things that please himself His word's down here floundering and wondering how we're to do this he always he's always taking care of us he's always working on us he's always perfecting us He's always giving everything for us. This is his is love for us. And that's how we're to love our wives. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work and you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Colossians 1.28, that we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And That's how we have to look at our wives. Lay down your life and your hobbies, the things that we spend so much time pursuing that mean nothing. And pursue her, giving her your time, striving to to make sure that every word that comes out of your mouth is wholesome and and meant for her good and causes her to to become more like him. Not letting the bitterness come out and then pouring that on her and then causing her to be more embittered. Not letting the slander come out and then causing her to, to return slander with you. We protect her with our words. We're, 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 we're purposeful with the way that we speak to one another on the couch when no one's around. Striving to cause her to be uplifted. As she struggles with sin, we, we take that and we bear it. And, and, and we return we return goodness and kindness. Words of, of, of comfort and words of, of love. Words that, that point her to Christ. Not, not, not continuing to gossip and causing her to sin more. Not continuing to slander with her and causing her to sin more. Husbands, we have a responsibility to strive to sanctify our brides in the way that Christ sanctifies us. Through every thought about her and every word that comes out of our lips and every action we take towards her. And that will not happen if we are not purposefully, purposefully thinking through how to do that. How to speak, how to think, how to act towards them. It is not natural. Sin is natural. Holiness is supernatural. And holiness takes planning and timing and a purposeful endeavor, a purposeful laying down of your life, setting aside your pride, setting aside your stuff, your pleasure, your desire, your wants, laying aside you, denying yourself and putting her before you. That is our call. That is what we're called to do, So that she is holy and blameless, that she, we can present her back to her father and say, I did everything I could to make her perfect for you, and that she becomes our glory. She becomes the, the, the culmination of all of our effort and our work to glorify him, that we can look at our wives and we can say, that was the, the very possible best I could do with the word given to me and the spirit of God within me. She is as spotless and blameless as possible. And then give her back to her father and say, finish. That's our job as husbands. Lay down our lives. Sanctify our wives. Both of which we cannot do on our own. We're completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. And we must have our eyes on him. And he must be the example. We have to imitate Christ and love our wives just like Christ has loved the church. So when with this? husbands. We're to lay down our lives for our wives. We have to empty ourselves of any selfish ambition and pride and selfishness that we have and, and, and love her. We have to submit ourselves fully unto God and to her so that she is made more like Christ. We have to make ourselves holy for her so she's an example for us to follow. I mean, you need to show her the love of Jesus Christ. There is no... Woman of God on this earth that would not want to submit to a man that is daily sacrificing himself for her and striving, striving to deny everything about himself so that she, so that she would look more like Christ. We never deceive our wives. We only speak truth for her sanctification. We rescue her from her sin. We do the work of Christ, assisting Christ by helping transfer her into his kingdom spotless and, and blameless, not adding to her sinfulness. We nourish her and cherish her in the same way that the Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride, in the same way that we nourish ourselves. We're to constantly cherish our wives, constantly nourish her through the, the word of God and through our holy living so that she sees it. We've been given the role as the head of the wife, the authority in the marriage relationship. And we're to to, to make peace by sacrificing ourselves. You may think you're right, but who cares? Just be humble. Don't fight back. Humble yourself and and, and return no insult for insult. We're to bear up. Sin will happen, but when it happens, it's the husband's role to be the first To say, will you please forgive me? I was wrong. I remember my pastor, our pastor in California, saying that to to me uh, before we got married. He said, if you you and your wife ever get in a fight and, and she asks you to forgive her before you ask her to forgive you, then you completely blew it. You are the first to humble yourself. You are the first to say, I was wrong. Even if your point was right, you were wrong in arguing. And you were wrong in leading her to that place where you upset her and made her angry. You are wrong in not just being humble and loving her. I mean, that just that just stuck in my mind. And we love her even to the point. And think about this. Even, even when we're in sin, look at Matthew 18. Even when we're in sin and we run off in our sin and we try to separate ourselves from God, God pursues us. He leaves the nine-nine behind and goes after the one, right? Even if there's something comes up in your marriage to where you've been in this place because of sin and she separates herself from you, you love her. You go after her. Don't let it be for anything that you have done that she runs away. You love her and you strive after her. Even when you're in this place, if your wife is engaged in evil, hostile in mind against you, proud, selfish, sinful, whatever, and it may be legitimate sin. You, you strive. To be merciful, forgiving, kind, and to reconcile with her. That's what we do because that's what Christ does for us. I went on a thousand different tangents tonight. I'm sorry about that. But the point, the point in all of this is that the, the motivation for our marriages must be Christ and a fear of Christ. The, the foundation for all of our marriages is the nature of who he is. Anytime you don't know what to do, look at him. And what he is like, do that. And then the application of that is, now walk in love as Christ's love. Imitate Jesus Christ. Be submissive in the same way that he was submissive to his father and to others for their good and for his glory. That's how we're to live our lives. That's how we're to, 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 to exemplify Christ within our marriages. And in doing so, each of our marriages become testimonies to one another of what Christ is like. And then we begin to edify one another with that measure that Christ has gifted to each of us so that we become more and more and more like him. If your marriage is failing and hurting, then so are ours because we all affect one another. But if your marriage is thriving and looks like Christ, then so will ours because we will see that in you and you will become an example for us to be more and more like like Jesus Christ. So we have to strive strive to exemplify Christ in our marriage. This is why God designed marriage, so that we would understand the love of Christ, so that we would understand our role towards him, and we would understand um, um, how Christ loved his father. And in doing so, we would we would know him more, we would love him more, we would love our wives more. We must keep our eyes focused on him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word is always sufficient and perfect and complete, and it always shows us exactly how we are to, to live our, our lives on this earth in a way that will glorify you and please you. And Father, what a blessing that as we strive after Christ, we even reap benefits in this life. Father, as we strive to love our wives in the way that you have loved us, or that would cause us to, to grow closer together. As our wives strive to submit to their husbands in the way that you submitted to your father in the way that we're called to submit to you, that would cause the husband to, to love his wife even more, that we would become tangible expressions of Christ to one another and that we would, we would reap the benefit of a, 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 a marriage that is, is unfathomable to those outside of the kingdom of God. Lord, you're so good to us. We're so thankful for your word, for your spirit. We're so thankful for your direction. We're thankful for your kindness and your love and your mercy and your grace. And we pray, help us, Father, to walk in a manner worthy of you, to lay down our lives for one another be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, for wives to be submissive to their husbands, husbands to lay down their lives for their wives to sanctify her and make her more and more holy more and more to your image. And we know that you are the one doing all the work. And so you receive all the glory. We praise in your heavenly name.